In the interview that follows, I speak with Terry Dillian, an accomplished therapist, group leader, and author. Terry also suffers from ALS. Her paralysis from this illness means she is able to communicate solely through eye movement. Given this, the audio that you're about to hear comes from a computerized voice that reads words Terry has selected with her eyes. After several months of writing with her back and forth, I was incredibly fortunate to record this interview live with Terry over Zoom. I hope it is as meaningful to listen to as it was to create with her. At this point I sense our true legacies are much less measurable than any one of our creations would dictate, whether or not we have ushered books or businesses or humans into life. They are left in the risks we took in following the cries of our conscience, the moments of losing ourselves in simple care or humble witnessing for one another. Our sweat and tears as we strive for a relationship or family or society holding more sanity, beauty, or justice, and the willingness to grow despite the good excuses not to. That's Terry Dillian, today's guest on the Group Dynamics Dispatch. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm Angelo Siliberti, and I'm excited to share with you these conversations that explore what it means to live and grow within groups, from our early lives to our professional role as leaders. In these episodes, you will hear from some of the key figures practicing and writing about group dynamics from around the country and the world. It's our hope that these dialogues will inform and challenge so that we can all learn more about the rediscovery of self and other that can occur through rich emotional engagement in group. Today's guest is Terry Dillian. Terry began her study of social psychology as an undergraduate at Northern Arizona University. In 2003, she was awarded a Bachelor of Science as a dual major in women's studies and sociology. She went on to study contemplative psychotherapy at Naropa University and completed a 10-month clinical internship at Boulder's Outpatient Addiction Recovery Center. After completing her master's degree in 2008, Terry focused on treating dual diagnosis clients struggling with addiction and mental health issues, especially as seen in involuntary settings. She worked as a therapist at a residential treatment center in Portland, Oregon, for men court-ordered to long-term addiction treatment. While there, she cut her teeth as a group leader, running up to 12 groups a week, including her most significant group challenge to date, a weekly conflict resolution group with 50 members, which she remembers as quite rowdy. After receiving her credentials as a licensed addiction counselor, licensed professional counselor, and certified group psychotherapist, she continued her group work in various capacities, including private practice, court-ordered substance abuse treatment settings, and the Boulder County Jail. In 2013, she took a board role with the Colorado Group Psychotherapy Society. In the following years, she frequently led group institutes and workshops at the annual fall conference. In 2016, immediately after completing her first semester teaching large group process at Naropa University, Terry was diagnosed with a sporadic case of motor neuron illness, also known as ALS. 
other than reappearing to co-lead the large group at the 2019 FCGPS conference, she has retired from clinical practice and teaching. She now focuses on writing and excavating the lessons of terminal illness and disability. Her first book, which she wrote entirely through eye movement, is titled No Pressure, No Diamonds, Mining for Meaning in Illness and Loss. It's set to be published this November. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Terry Dillian. Hi, Terry. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Angelo. I'm really happy to have this time with you and to get to share a conversation that has already been underway, at least in a written form between us, and to now extend that conversation and to invite the listeners to be a part of it. So, as a starting point, I wondered if you would share with us how you discovered group and what drew you to it. You know, when I first imagined becoming a psychotherapist, and when I first started graduate school, I had zero interest in group. Honestly, I'm not even sure if I knew back then that psychotherapy could be done in groups, and when I found out it could, I'm fairly confident I assumed it was just a subpar cost-effective substitute for the quote real work of individual therapy. Of course, at that time I was getting my first experience of group courtesy of Naropa's contemplative psychotherapy program. So every week 12 of us would sit in this tiny room, led by Jeff Price, and try to process what was happening in our lives and in our relationships with each other. Now, I was surely not one of those unique few who grew up in the type of family where open emotional communication was welcome, but it's fair to say very few of us knew what we were doing in that group. Some of my classmates largely refused to participate in a meaningful way, and sat there fuming in resistance every week for three years. It was pretty awful very dramatic and tense, everyone's defenses were up. Yet for some reason, I always looked forward to the group and wanted more time. Jeff's willingness to show up week after week and hold a respectful space for us even when our behavior was counterproductive was very instructive. I think it's safe to say it helped nudge me toward a more secure relational attachment over time. Something about the repetition and constancy of it was really helpful, and most of those people I feel quite close to to this day. And then I took the course on group leadership with Dr. Bob Unger, who of course is very skilled at encouraging group process that expands permission to express a wide emotional range. And his ability to set such a broad container for our discussions really got my interests raised. Here's this quirky professor who has taught for 20 years who somehow manages to intrigue, or enrage, a whole class full of people at once, yet he fielded our hostility not by shutting us down or by stern domination but by cheerfully encouraging us to say more, we therefore learned by immersive experience. I loved it, and I took his urging to attend the National Conference of the American Group Psychotherapy Association seriously, because I wanted to know more about how and why he did what he did. And once I attended one of those, I was hooked, but I should admit, it's not as if I knew what I was doing at those early conferences. I even had an institute leader announce during the didactic section that out of everyone in her group, I was the most shut down member. The one she was quote most concerned about. This was apparently because I just sat there silently intimidated while the other members were attacking her, and each other. In retrospect I realized that had been a very unskilled intervention on her part, was most likely a counter-transference aggression spoken aloud to shame me, so there's probably a good reason I was well defended in her group, right? but it didn't ultimately deter me because I already knew I was hooked. 
Something happened in the group spaces of those conferences that I hadn't experienced elsewhere. I sensed a potential for growth in a well-led group, and I liked it, and hungered for it. And I returned to my cohort group more fired up and ready to work. And I did my clinical internship at the Outpatient Addiction Recovery Center in Boulder. For some reason at the time they thought it would be easier for new interns to start with leading groups than seeing individuals, so I was really thrown into the deep end. So group by group, and with great supervision, I learned how to swim through all types of conflicts and impasses. It was exciting, and provocative, and frankly a little terrifying. And everything grew from there, and because I had taken it on myself to learn as much about group leadership as possible, I was willing to try leading any type of group. At one point I was running about 12 groups a week. There were psychoeducational groups focused on trauma, addiction, relapse prevention, and straight-up process groups. And though I would do it a little differently now, I was encouraging a high amount of process in nearly all of them. I even led a group practicing and discussing somatic meditation in the Boulder County Jail. I'm sure the guards were riled up by that, this young therapist taking a bunch of inmates into a classroom, having everyone lie down on yoga mats and breathe into their lower bellies, and then sitting up to talk about it. I loved all of it, especially watching people who had good reason to be shut down and well defended slowly begin to come alive and support each other during discussions. I love how you describe that time and the passion and the playfulness of diving in and leading a bunch of different types of groups and experimenting and really watching group members come alive. And then in the midst of all of this, as you write about in your story, you're hit with this diagnosis. Would you talk about that experience and returning to your practice, any of the ways in which it impacted how you saw and led groups, as well as any ways in which group impacted your experience of getting the diagnosis and uh, moving forward? You know, these are very big questions. How long do you have to listen? This is one problem with trying to have a conversation with a computer voice. It's hard to get the inflection right to tell a joke. Prior to this illness and my diagnosis, I was always quite zipped up as a leader, very formal about it. In a way, my style had its strengths, because I took the role of leadership seriously. I really took my seat, so to speak, and was very aware of group boundaries and creating a strong container for members to work in. Many beginning therapists and group leaders err in a different direction, are too worried about being relatable and likable, and in the process lose sight of the unique responsibilities and influence of the role. But I recognize now that in the process of attempting to create such a clear demarcation of roles within the groups I ran, I lost some emotional flexibility and basic human responsiveness. And though it was just a part of my journey as a leader and a person, and good leaders are always works in progress, I can look back and realize I really had some relaxing to do. Ha ha ha. But suddenly in May 2016, my life was bombed overnight by this shocking diagnosis and prognosis. You probably don't know this Angelo, but my diagnosis of ALS really came out of nowhere. I didn't see it coming at all. I honestly had a very vague notion of what this disease was before that neurologist diagnosed me with it. Just like for so many people before acquiring a physical disability or terminal diagnosis, I really didn't even consider something like this could happen to me, especially at my age. It's embarrassing to admit to my naivete, but this seemed like the kind of thing that only happened to other people unlucky people, so it was certainly a rude awakening, 
the veil of able-bodied privilege was suddenly torn from me, and it definitely shook my sense of self. This probably goes without saying for this audience, but receiving a scary diagnosis, especially if it's like ALS and the death rate is nearly 100%, is a traumatizing experience. Suddenly your body is threatening your existence, and there really couldn't be an enemy closer to home than one's own body. Of course it's not just a one-time event of realizing you're living in a ticking time bomb. The whole process of progressive disease is a drawn-out existential threat that you can't escape, unless your methods of disassociation are really drastic, which of course comes with its own side effects. That was a joke, but the upside effect on my relationships is that having a confrontation with the threat of death is very humbling. Death is a big equalizer. My diagnosis really got to what's universal in the human experience. That we all have these bodies we really can't fully control, and we're all vulnerable in that way. And most, importantly, especially once I'd really come to accept my prognosis and impending death, I was largely, just stripped of pretense, things got very real. And at the same time, with a newfound perspective on, what was important and what was not, some sense of humor opened up in a new way. It was strangely, liberating to come to realize I had little left to lose. So this did change my approach to relationships in general, and eventually, to leading groups in particular. As for your question about my group experiences eventually impacting my perspective on diagnosis, that's a tough one. Of course I could give you some general answer about how my years in group, both as a leader and a member, exposed me to a variety of people and life experiences I would never have had otherwise. That would be true because simply hearing so many people talk about intimate aspects of their lives is instructive in and of itself. But I still think there's some things that you can't really know until you go through them yourself. Having personal experience with a given trauma or life passage opens something up in the psyche in a new way. Even if it leaves a hole inside, fragments us, there's an aspect of being human, and better knowing the full mess of the human condition, which allows for more empathy or depth of understanding for others who are similarly devastated. Or at least that's what I found. It's funny, because in the weeks following my diagnosis, even before I figured out how to try to navigate my new reality with my clients, I started getting phone calls from prospective clients who mostly wanted to discuss their grief, even though I hadn't changed my advertising at all. And my longtime clients spontaneously began to process old losses and start talking about death more. It's almost as if my own experience had opened up a space for them perhaps even a depth of experience, where they suddenly felt I could witness them. It's like I began to emit this grief radar, and people responded, even if unconsciously. I could have read all the books about grief in the world, but it wouldn't have informed me in the same way. What I'm trying to say, I think, is that nothing could have fully prepared me for what I had to go through, ultimately. But I can only imagine that the years of being challenged in group, and being nurtured, especially when overwhelmed or feeling outside my comfort zone, gave me a leg up on psychological resilience and flexibility that I would not have had otherwise. And I do believe there are parallel processes in our basic attachment styles originally arising from parental figures, and our sense of trust in and relationship to the whole wombang shebang of capital L life itself. So I do think all that psychological and relational work I put in in all those groups, in as much as it buttressed a healthy attachment to relationships, also served to help me find my footing more readily after being knocked about by the kind of circumstances some people would describe as caused by God, or the universe, or destiny. I feel so struck by that story you shared about emitting that kind of grief radar 
and people picking up on it and responding by processing their own experiences of grief and loss. And it just feels so timely right now, especially given the pandemic and all the different forms of loss that people are experiencing. So would you talk more about what you've come to understand about grief and loss and some of what you see as most important relationally and how we respond to it? Yes, I am so happy to be invited by you to talk about grief more, Angelo. It's such an important reality to acknowledge. And right now, so many people are grieving for so many reasons on both personal and collective levels. I was participating in my own group at the time I was diagnosed, a group I had been in for a year and a half. The group was made up of young members mostly, new professionals, folks who are dealing with trying to build their careers and get married and have babies. And here I was suddenly grappling with the end of my life, and I felt so far cast from the general tenor of the discussion. I didn't want the whole group to become about me for however long I had left, so, I left, two sessions later. I'm not sure if that was a good decision. It probably wasn't a great decision, but it's what I did, probably because my frontal lobes were fuzzy due to the diagnostic trauma. It's noteworthy, though, that I don't remember the leader making a strong pitch for me to stay in the group. I don't want to speak poorly of him, because for all I know, he was as shocked by my sudden prognosis as I was, and I certainly didn't give him much time to figure out a good intervention, but speaking generally, I think as clinicians we need to make more room in our groups for people to be supported in crisis, not less. The leader missed an opportunity to advocate for me, to say, hey, you still belong here, and if your situation makes other group members uncomfortable, they can talk about it. In fact, I'll help them. Death happens, disabilities happen, these are possible realities we are all facing, whether we like to talk about it or not, if he would have said that, I might have stayed or I might have still left, I don't know, but I believe it would have been a powerful intervention for all of us, more generally, the thing that is important to remember as group leaders, I believe, is that in any given moment it's safe to assume our clients have a backlog of grief, the full extent of which we likely don't know, they might not even know to call it grief because we live in a culture which is generally averse to feeling the so-called negative emotions. Collectively we're very much still informed by the bootstrap narrative. And the quote power of positive thinking. Many, many people think they are failing somehow if they aren't feeling sunny all the time. And unfortunately, there's a lot of blame and shame thrown at people who have a more measured or heavy outlook, as if it's a personal failing instead of a sober response to sobering realities. So of course, most people wind up conflicted and confused about their own grief, which means most of us have reservoirs of pain and experience that we haven't fully honored or acknowledged. There are different categories of grief. There are the expectable losses, such as a grandparent dying, the loss of one's parents as an older adult, the loss of beloved pets, the loss of phases of our life, such as the empty nest or even retirement. Though expectable, these can still be debilitating. If you love someone who is losing their mind to dementia, that is a loss, which is related to the type of anticipatory grief we might have toward a loved one with a life-threatening illness or addiction, you know they are slipping away, and you are powerless to help them. Then there are the type of collective losses that are harder to name. Right now, people are grieving climate change, the steady threats to American democracy, the continued racial injustices. I'll never forget that feeling of devastation I had as a kid in Northern California, watching the land I loved steadily getting eaten up by bulldozers making way for new retail developments. It felt personally harmful on some deep level I didn't yet have language for. 
Some therapists wouldn't know how to categorize these types of pain, but they are very real, and can have significant effects on our emotional, mental, and physical well-being. Then there are shocking, outside the natural order losses, such as when you suddenly lose a partner, or child, or the use of your own limbs in an accident. These are profoundly life-altering events. No matter the nature of the losses, they often compound over time, so that the pain and existential disappointment only grows. But as clinicians and leaders, when we are uncomfortable feeling our own grief, we will have less ability to hold it when it shows up in our clients. And it's there, whether or not we or they know how to name it. This is why we need to keep doing our own work, in addition to professional training. I think therapists are still largely hit or miss about their understanding and treatment of grief. In my view, grief should never be pathologized or have arbitrary time limits placed on it. The stages of grief model unfortunately is poorly understood, and can be used against people. It doesn't help to stigmatize anyone for a very normal, natural, and expectable process. Grief need never be fixed. It needs companionship and witnessing. After all, grief at its most basic is a natural outcome of the depths of our care and love for what we have lost. It's incredibly human. And the way we deal with it, and think about it, has profound implications for our emotional and physical health. I love how you talk about grief not needing to be fixed and that what it needs is companionship and witnessing. And one of the things that actually comes to mind that I feel so struck by whenever we interact is the sense of humor that you continually bring and the way you constantly find ways of fitting in jokes. So I'm wondering if you talk about that, any of the relationship that you see between grief and humor. Yes, gladly. Speaking from my own experience here, humor has been a primary tool of coping with a reality that's hard to understand. It's as if there is no direct language to capture the depth of absurdity or insult that life can bring, so only a symbolic, metaphorical language can be used. In that way, humor becomes a kind of poetry, an indirect way to capture, name, and simultaneously claim a degree of reverence for the power of our reality. And my reality includes a steady march to my death before I even escape my 30s, so I get to play with that. I mean, I don't know how one can survive the daily, repeated insults of paralysis without making jokes about it. I imagine it's like how parents of infants like making poop jokes. Parents are often exhausted and overwhelmed, and making jokes about the messiness of the experience buys some distance from it and perhaps therefore some mastery of it. It's saying, you won't break me, poop. I've got your number, so my husband and I have our versions, we make fun of everything messy in our experience, including the difficulty of embodiment in general, I've found if you can laugh at your own death because you recognize you're actually facing it, there's a freedom there, I sometimes reference earth as the school of pain, and I like pointing it out that I get to graduate before things heat up even more, politically, culturally, literally, see ya friends, I'm out, it's callous, I know but it's a basic reality which I believe I've earned the right to reclaim, and when we can name things in such a way, and share a sincere chuckle over it, we're expressing a form of resilience and hardiness. The only trick is to bring a soft heart to the pain still, to have the freedom to hold the pain and tears alongside the recognition of absurdity, and the laughter, in this way we stay human. In fact, I'd say that because I've had the fortune of surviving long enough to process so much grief and even find some acceptance, Humor has become even more of an option, I get to choose how I relate to my circumstances, and humor is a survival strategy, a way of connecting me to the beauty and impermanence of life, 
and reminding me I can still create, I can still dance, I'm not dead yet, so might as well have some fun. Now, having said all that, it's important to name that there are some losses which are too tragic, or too recent, to even try to bring humor to, especially if we weren't the ones personally affected. For example, I try to be very careful making jokes about illness or death right now because of this pandemic, which is not funny at all. It's a nightmare for so many people, and is disproportionately affecting people of color for a myriad of reasons. Even after the pandemic is done, the amount of grief and trauma it will leave behind for the living is staggering. Not everyone has the privilege of a good death process, so it's important to not romanticize or relativize death and dying. Absolutely. And what you're saying about just the staggering level of collective trauma and ambiguous loss that we're experiencing and that we're going to be continuing to respond to as we move forward here makes me think about what you had said earlier around witnessing and being witnessed. Would you talk more about that? Definitely. Us humans are storytelling creatures, and getting to share something about our experience helps us hold and integrate it. I think therapists know this better than anyone. We all want to get got. We want our journeys understood, respected, and mirrored back to us by others. We feel less alone that way. But even though I think therapists generally understand this, I think the role of diverse literature and arts in a therapist's education is generally underrated. Great artists and writers are storytellers with a knack for exploring and evoking complex emotion, and in that way they encourage us all to be better witnesses. Having a broad exposure to the humanities helps us recognize themes within the human condition. This dawned on me relatively recently, and now I'm trying to catch up from a lifetime of mediocre public school education. Currently I'm working my way through Nick Cave's list of 50 favorite books of all time. It's so wonderful and it all makes me wish I had read even more broadly all along. Well, I love how you're talking about how literature and the arts are underrated but foundational. And also that you're mentioning The Cave. I actually recently watched One More Time with Feeling, uh, which in case listeners aren't familiar with it, is a documentary that explores the impact of a traumatic loss on he and his family and what happens with his creative process. And I was incredibly moved by it. So I was actually wondering, would you share with us one or two of the books you've been reading from that list that have spoken to you? I'll admit, I have a bit of an artist's crush on Nick Cave, which is not uncommon for people who know his work. Since you watched the excellent documentary, One More Time with Feeling, you know he has grappled deeply with grief after losing his teenage son, so I naturally have interest in who inspires him, especially now. I have had to be creative with his list of books, because since I can no longer hold a book physically, I'm restricted to the titles that I can read online. And two of his recommended authors that I've especially enjoyed recently are Austrian psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, and the English poet David White. Frankl, especially in the newly released, Yes to Life, In Spite of Everything, which is taken from lectures he gave within a year after being released from a Holocaust concentration camp has such a compelling way of discussing finding meaning even in the harshest circumstances. He deals with serious illness in a very poignant way, and I honestly don't know of many people more qualified than he to treat the subject of meaning-making with more beauty and nuance. And then David White. I have mostly just listened to White's poetry and lectures by audiobook. He has a very nice voice, 
a weathered voice, and especially in his book Consolations he writes about the depths of grief, and how we must carry grief with us. I think great poetry captures and evokes emotion in a way prose cannot, and in that way, serves as good medicine. Yeah, definitely good medicine. I love how his poems in particular can be both elegiac and celebratory all at the same time. And this makes me think about how you talk about narrative as holding a journey and how your story of getting introduced to group started with being a member of Jeff Price's small group process at Naropa. And then how the two of you, just last year, 13 years later, uh, run a group together when you co-led the large group process at the fall conference, which uh, I was incredibly moved by and loved participating in. So I was wondering, actually, if you would talk about what that experience was like, both leading the group and also co-leading with Jeff after all these years. I'm so delighted to hear that it was a powerful group for you, Angelo, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on why, if you'd care to say more. Yeah, without going into any of the content, I'll just say that I think your presence and the periodic need for us to pause as you dictated your response and interventions, it really slowed things down in a way that allowed us as a community to, I think, to talk to each other in a new way and from a different place. And it, it just felt like there was more space for listening and considering what was being expressed. That's wonderful. It did feel like an especially strong large group, with a wide range of emotion shared and a lot of tenderness. By the time of that conference, as you know, I was already quadriplegic, using my power chair, and relying on my computer voice to speak. By that point I had already observed how many strangers had begun talking to me like they would a child, assuming that since I couldn't speak, I must have a cognitive disability as well. Some would automatically speak loudly or slowly, assuming I couldn't hear correctly. This sort of overgeneralization of disablement toward those of us with disabilities is actually quite common. So here I was rolling in to lead his group, and a pretty large group at that, using an unconventional voice in a visibly compromised body to command the attention of the room. I knew it would be hard to be gawked at, especially by old colleagues who hadn't known how much I'd changed physically, and things would feel awkward. But mostly I wanted to prove it could be done, that someone like me, deeply debilitated in body but not in mind could run a group even of that size. Whereas most leaders would have been concerned primarily with which kinds of interventions to make, and when, my concerns included much more pedestrian worries. I worried about my computer shutting down, or me sneezing in the middle of group and needing my husband to help me clean up. Those sort of events pose a special challenge for a leader while continuing to hold the leadership role with confidence and command. I knew any events like that would ultimately need to be used for discussion, of course, because seeing an obvious vulnerability in a leader would bring up feelings in the group, and I knew I would need to bring a hearty spirit. As my co-leader, Jeff helped me with these concerns ahead of time. I asked him, Jeff, won't people be too impatient with my computer voice, and my slow responses? And he said something like, yeah, what's new? It's large group, people are always going to be annoyed about something, they'll get to talk about it. Ha 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 ha, and I realized he was right, so Jeff really helped me prepare in that way. Because I had already sat in so many groups with him, had led a number of large groups at Naropa University, he and I had built some mutual trust and respect and had a good working relationship. 
I knew that even if the group went poorly, we'd be able to learn from it and share a chuckle together afterward. But by the point the conference arrived, I had been in hospice for four, maybe five months, and I had already made my peace with death. Which brought a strange freedom, I thought, what really do I have to fear at this point? The worst has already happened, this reality, and our willingness as leaders to name death and disability so frankly, seemed to make it easier for the group to also speak frankly about physical vulnerability, grief, and loss. Unfortunately, it ended up being a strong group with fairly high participation. Members shared courageously, spontaneously, and poignantly. I believe Jeff and I made a good team. Afterwards I wished I had done some interventions differently. I'm pretty sure I abruptly cut off a speaker at the end without meaning to. But that's the way it goes. We make mistakes in relationship, and we make mistakes as leaders and therapists. Apparently we are human, and imperfect, until the very end. The important thing, I think, is that we keep being willing to show up, keep learning, and give it our best. I like the way you said that, Terry. There's something so freeing about acknowledging that we do and we get to just keep making mistakes until the very end. I also want to talk about your book, No Pressure, No Diamonds, Mining for Meaning in Illness and Loss. It's coming out in November. First off, congratulations. It is uh, so incredibly exciting. And I'm uh, wondering if you would tell us more about your experience of writing the book and also just thinking of something you said earlier, any ways in which writing could be a form of witnessing and being witnessed. It's been the best treatment decision I've made throughout this illness, and I mean that on emotional and physical levels. It's kept me going. It started off because I still thought I had a fighting chance against the illness, and I wanted to document what I had so far been through. But of course the meaning and purpose of the book shifted as time went on, and especially as I stopped treating my condition and made peace with my impending death. Writing provided me a chance to make sense of my experience in an intimate and meaningful way. And because the premise of the book is based in making meaning out of really difficult circumstances, and I want it to be honest and helpful to readers, it's forced me to really chew through my experiences in a thoughtful way. I have to ask myself, wait, is that really how it happened? Is that really what I was thinking and feeling at that point? And, why, while I could say that I'm writing the book, sometimes I think the book is actually writing me. It's helping me know myself and define my experience in a deep way, which itself is a real gift. Everyone with the inclination should try to write a memoir, I think, talk about a reckoning with one's own life. As for being witnessed through writing, yes, absolutely that factors into wanting to share my story. Although it should be noted that writing a book feels quite different than sharing a traumatic or intimate experience to a therapist or a group, which is set up to be a supportive and hopefully skillful audience to hold the experience. An audience of readers is rarely so forgiving. I have the bad habit of reading critical reviews of great authors on Amazon, which can be just chilling to any writer's spirit. Perhaps this is just what it takes to be willing to put yourself out there on a public stage a willingness to be insulted and misunderstood. It's frightening, especially with such an intimate medium, but not without enormous personal benefit. Well, I am so grateful that you are sharing your story with us, and I think so many people will be as well. As a final question, Terry, thinking about the book and what you write about in terms of mining for meaning, would you talk about some of what you find most meaningful now as you approach what comes next? This is another big question, but a beautiful question, 
and I feel so fortunate to have the circumstances to really explore it. Honestly I don't know how to answer it without bridging into theological or at least deeply philosophical territory, which might be more than your listeners are interested in. That said, I can attempt to answer it on two different levels. The first would be through looking at the beauty and purpose in my existence up to the point of my death, and what I can leave behind for the living. Having said how meaningful writing has been to me, it's worth noting that many people have asked me if my book is the final stamp of what I care to leave with the world before exiting, my capital L legacy. I'd usually answer their earnest questions with a rude snort or cackle, because that much pressure would make anyone queasy, and we all need some room for mediocrity and error up until the very end. I guess I'm not willing to make such a bold statement. At this point I sense our true legacies are much less measurable than any one of our creations would dictate, whether or not we have ushered books or businesses or humans into life. They are left in the risks we took in following the cries of our conscience, the moments of losing ourselves in simple care or humble witnessing for one another. Our sweat and tears as we strive for a relationship or family or society holding more sanity, beauty, or justice, and the willingness to grow despite the good excuses not to. Along those lines, I'm still learning how to be a better wife, daughter, sister, friend, and ally. I'm learning how to be more fun for my caregiver. I'm still trying to figure out how to encourage more people to vote. I think no moment of presence or learning can ever be fully erased from the human legacy we all share. We all play a conscious part in this ever-individuating universe. In this way and for better or worse, we are timeless. I find this very meaningful. The other level I could answer your question on is even more broad and esoteric, and something I play with more in the book. Without diving too deeply right now, I do believe there is more to sentient life than meets the eye, and that ever-present witnessing part of our awareness is bigger than the physical material of our bodies. If I thought my death was the transition into never-ending nothingness, I'd be pretty depressed right now. But I don't believe that, I'm just on a journey which doesn't stop, we all are. And all the hard stuff we go through gives us opportunities to be polished, and learn more about how to love, and how to be in right relationship with everyone and everything we encounter. That journey is the whole point, I believe. Well, I love that you're bringing in that broader, more esoteric dimension. And I just want to thank you for your willingness to share your journey with us through this interview. It's been incredibly meaningful to hear and to be a part of. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us the way that you have. You are really an inspiration, Terry. I want to thank you, Angelo, for giving me the opportunity to have my voice heard in this format. I know it's a lot of work for you to have been corresponding back and forth so much in preparation, and I really appreciate you having the patience and taking the time. It's been really fun for me, and I hope it's been meaningful for you as well. It absolutely has been, and you're so welcome, Terry. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about Terry and the release of her book, please visit her website, terrydillion.com. That's spelled T-E-R-I-D-I-L-L-I-O-N. We will also include a link to her site in the show notes. We also want to thank you for listening to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. At Four Corners, we're excited to announce our upcoming fall conference, which will be held virtually November 7th and 8th. The theme this year is Group, a healing force for the 21st century. 
and features a wide range of institutes and workshops exploring the unique power of group at this particular moment in time. Tickets are available on our website, fcgps.org. Our website is also a great place to stay updated on future conferences, workshops, and training programs. If you'd be interested in supporting our podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes. If you have any feedback for us or have suggestions for featured guests and topics, please feel free to email us at podcast at fcgps.org. We appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events soon.